Psalm 119, in uh, the stanza that we're going to look at and conclude tonight, it's Lamith, verse 89 down through verse 96. We began it some time ago. I can't even tell you what date. And we looked at uh, the subject of God's word preserved. You can see that from verse 89, but also preserving. And I think one of the demonstrations of God's preserving is in verse 92. If your law had not been my delight, then I would have perished in my affliction. So God's word preserved and preserving. And uh, as we briefly dip into Psalm 119, Pastor John's going to return, Lord willing, to his uh, series next week. But don't forget about Psalm 119, and we will continue it and, Lord willing, finish it. But if this is a reminder tonight to be in God's word and the value of God's word, I hope the Lord will use it in your own life uh, personally, uh, certainly for my life, I'm hoping even as we spend time in it tonight, uh, it will do the same. It will encourage me of the value of the Word of God and uh, the daily pursuit of the Word of God. We uh, we need God's Word, and uh, we need it more than we think we do. And I would just ask you the question, in uh, by the way of even application, as we look into it, are you are you reading God's Word? Are you spending time in God's Word? Are you meditating in God's word? Is God's word sustaining you and strengthening you and reviving you? You may have seen in your life at times God's word and the effect of God's word in your life in that way. I hope that's becoming more and more your experience. Uh, I remember, and I think I may have shared this before, but if you haven't heard it, I had a time in my life where I was just about to start uh, a new job. And in the process of time, I asked my supervisor, I asked, what could I do to prepare for this job that I was in? I was going to be ministering to young men, counseling young men, uh, discipling young men. And he said, well, he said, there are books I can give you. Gave me some, but he said, really more than anything, uh, you can just spend time in God's word. And I took his suggestion to heart, and for the next several weeks, I dedicated about two hours a day just to reading God's Word. And I'm thankful that I had the time to do that by God's grace. But I can say that over the course of those next two weeks, God revived my heart in ways that I did not expect. God began dealing with sin in my life in ways that I did not expect because I was in his word. And we, with the rhythm of the church, we meet weekly, we meet multiple times. Uh, There's certainly opportunity to hear from God's word and spend time with one another and speak the truth to one another. And so there certainly is within God's plan for us times for the word of God to be brought to our consideration. But there's also those times when as I grow, I feed myself. I don't rely on someone else feeding me or giving me. I take it myself, and I feed on it myself. And I want to just encourage you to do that. That's a mark of maturity when children pick up the food themselves and are no longer spoon-fed. 
and it certainly is the mark of maturity as a believer as we begin to read. And you might have, for whatever reason, gotten out of the habit. And there are times, of course, that we establish a habit and we continue with that habit, but then we get out of the habit and we don't realize what we've lost when we stop. And so I just want to encourage you to get back into the Word. God's Word does preserve, it does revive. Let's read verses 89 through 96, and we'll look at the latter part of this stanza. David writes, Forever, O Lord, your Word is settled in heaven. Your faithfulness continues throughout all generations. You establish the earth, and it stands. They stand this day according to your ordinances, for all things are your servants. If your law had not been my delight, then I would have perished in my affliction. I will never forget your precepts, for by them you have revived me. I am yours, save me, for I have sought your precepts. The wicked wait for me to destroy me. I shall diligently consider your testimonies. I have seen a limit to all perfection. Your commandment is exceedingly broad. So we think about God's word preserved. There's a word of praise that David gives for the eternality of God's word and the preservation of it in heaven. And then there's praise for God's enduring faithfulness and his preservation of the world. Of course, how did he create the world? By his word, how does he sustain the world by his powerful word, the word of his power? So he's praising God for his enduring faithfulness and his sustaining the world. He also praises God for his dominion, his mastery over all things, and his preservation of all things, verse 91. And so there's praise for what God has done. And then I believe the last thing that we looked at when we were considering this a portion of the psalm was the power of God's word to preserve in affliction, in a time of trouble. And I just made the point, and I think uh, if you know the Lord and have seen uh, circumstances and situations in your own life, and you've asked the question, I don't know how I would do it without God. I don't know how I would do it without God's word. And then you look at those who are unbelieving those who are lost and don't have the Holy Spirit, they don't have the power of God in their life. And you ask the question, how are they making it? And the answer is they don't. They obviously don't successfully. They turn to all sorts of things other than God. And it's our privilege and opportunity to point people to God, even in affliction. And we can be a testimony to others as we point people to the Lord in our affliction. Um, I've shared this testimony before, but had it kind of replicated in a uh, an unusual way. But um, remember a, a man, his name was John, and he was going to work every day and his secretary found out she had cancer. And when he learned that, of course, he was very concerned and it was terminal. And as he observed her life, he could see that day after day, she was not growing discouraged or sad. She was joyful. And he didn't understand what was going on. And as he, over time, observed, and then finally asked, he realized that the difference in her life was that she knew the Lord and God was sustaining her by his word and his power through that time of affliction. And he came to the place 
where he said to God, he said, it was one of the first times I remember praying that I want that. I want what she has. And by God's grace, uh, he did save John, saved his brother. And now he and his brother both have Christian families, but it was the grace of God, the power of God through his word in a life that was being tested and tried by affliction. I say I've, I've seen it replicated because I sat a few months ago with someone who's connected with our daughter's schooling. She had come over to our house and um, just had some opportunity to interact with her, her family. And um, just as I listened to her talk, I could tell that she was trusting in the Lord and holding fast to God's word in her affliction. And her story is not done, but that circumstance is affecting her life. But what is sustaining her is, of course, God is sustaining her physical life, but life is more than just the physical. There's spiritual as well. And God has the power to preserve in affliction by the power of his word. Look at verse 93. Not only to preserve, but to revive. Verse 93, he says, I will never forget your precepts, for by them you have revived me. And you could certainly see how reviving is a part of preserving. But here you have a resolution, a resolution never to forget the precepts of God, never to forget those guidelines, those requirements, that instruction and direction for life, the precepts of God. Why? Why will I never forget them? He says, for by them you have revived me. If you are in need of reviving, it means that you're fainting or dying. There's weakness. But God's word is that source of spiritual strength that helps you through the time when you are failing or fainting. And you think of Elijah when he was being chased by Jezebel. And remember, he went down into the wilderness. He left his servant and he went further on. And then the Lord gave him food at the tree and let him sleep and let him eat and let him sleep, and let him eat. And as he ate that food that was brought by the angel of the Lord, what happened? Remember the verse? It says, so he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mountain of God. Now that's a long ways and a long time. And that's some pretty good food. To have that much strength, so I was thinking about that. I was thinking about what, speaking of C.S. Lewis, we'll talk about his office mate, J.R. Token, who talked about this kind of bread that the elves ate. You know what I'm talking about? Lembus bread, they called it, or whey bread. And as Token talks about this, of course, this is imaginary, but as he talks about this bread, as he puts this conversation between the elves and Gimli, and eventually as the hobbits talk about this bread, this bread has a virtue that is like no other. And Gimli, who's a dwarf, not really fond of the elves, he 
takes a nibble of the bread thinking this is just some, you know, worthless bread. But after he takes a bite, his eyes light up. And before you know it, he's gobbled the whole piece down. And the elves, they want to stop him because they understand what that bread is like. And they said to him, and this is Tolkien's Lord of the Rings as he talks about it, all the same, they say, we bid you spare the food, eat a little at a time and only at need, for these things are given to serve you when all else fails. And they talk about how to take care of this bread. But as time goes along and they take this bread on their journey, there's another thing that Tolkien puts in. It says, often in their hearts, they thank the Lady of Lorien for the gift of Lembus, for they could eat of it and find new strength even as they ran. It's an interesting description. You might wonder, where did he get that idea? And I know there's thoughts that Tolkien and Lewis, as they interacted with one another, had a Christian testimony. I don't know all their personal history, but did they take it from something they found in Scripture? There's one more place in which uh, and, and there are other times where they talk about the Lemba spread, but at one point uh, they talk about when Frodo and Sam are on their journey and they talk about this bread. It says, the Lembas had a virtue without which they would have long ago lain down to die. It did not satisfy desire, and at times Sam's mind was filled with the memories of food and longing for simple uh, bread and meats. And yet this way bread of the elves had a potency that increased as travelers relied on it alone and did not mingle it with other foods. It fed the will, and it gave strength to endure and to master sinew and limb beyond the measure of mortal kind. And you read that and you think, man, I wish there was some kind of bread like that. There's a bread better than that. There's a bread better than that. And it not only will give you strength to walk, and strength to run, but if you are weak, it will revive you. The Word of God. Are you in need of reviving? Is your heart faint? Are you weak in some way? Are you finding yourself without the strength that you feel like you need? Well, we have the Holy Spirit within, but the Holy Spirit urges us to commune with God. And in addition to prayer, because he urges us to pray, Father, he urges us to kill sin, Romans 8. He urges us to cry out to God, but he also urges us to read the Word of God, to take in the Word of God. And we are fed by the Word of God. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And when we've been revived by it, as the psalmist here has been, there is a resolution to never forget it. There's obviously the experience of seeing the effect of the word of God in life. And you can see this on the pages of Scripture as the Word of God comes and revives people. It revived a whole nation in the days of 
Josiah, turn over to 2 Chronicles 34 as an illustration. 2 Chronicles 34. Josiah was eight years old, verse 1 says, when he became king and he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. He did right in the sight of the Lord. He walked in the ways of his father David and did not turn aside to the right or to the left. For in the eighth year of his reign, while he was still a youth, he began to seek the God of his father David. And in the twelfth year, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of the high places, the ashram, the carved images, and the molten images. They tore down the altars of the Baals in his presence and the incense altars that were high above them. He chopped down and also the ashram, the carved images and the molten images he broke in pieces and ground it to powder and scattered it on the graves of those who had sacrificed to them. Then he burned the bones of the priests on their altars and purged Judah and Jerusalem and the cities of Manasseh, Ephraim, Simeon, as far as Naphtali and their surrounding ruins. He also tore down the altars and beat the ashram. And the carved images into powder and chopped down all the incense altars throughout the land of Israel. Then he returned to Jerusalem. Now in the 18th year of his reign, when he had purged the land and the house, he sent Shaphan, the son of Azaliah, and Maasiah, an official of the city, and Joah, the son of Jehoaz, Joahaz, rather, the recorder, to repair the house of the Lord his God. Then came Hilkiah, the high priest, and delivered the money that was brought into the house of God, which the Levites, the doorkeepers, had collected from Manasseh and Ephraim and from all the remnant of Israel, from all Judah and Benjamin and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Then they gave it into the hands of the workmen who had oversight of the house of the Lord, and the workmen were who were working in the house of the Lord used it to restore and repair the house. They, in turn, gave it to the carpenters and to the builders to buy quarried stone and timber for couplings and to make beams for the houses which the kings of Judah had let go to ruin. The men did the work faithfully with foremen over them to supervise, Jahath and Obadiah, the Levites of the sons of Merari, Zechariah, and Meshullam of the sons of the Kohathites, and the Levites, all who were skillful with musical instruments. They were also over the burden bearers and supervised all the workmen from job to job, and some of the Levites were scribes and officials and gatekeepers. When they were bringing out the money which had been brought into the house of the Lord, Hilkiah the priest found the book of the law of the Lord given by Moses. Hilkiah responded and said to Shaphan the scribe, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan. Then Shaphan brought the book to the king and reported further word to the king, saying, Everything that was entrusted to your servants they are doing. They've also emptied out the money which was found in the house of the Lord, and they've delivered it into the hands of the supervisors and the workmen. Moreover, Shaphan the scribe told the king, saying, Hilkiah the priest gave me a book. And Shaphan read it from it in the presence of the king. When the king heard the words of the law, he tore his clothes. Then the king commanded Hilkiah, Ahikam, son of Shaphan, Abdon, the son of Micah, Shaphan, the scribe, and Asiah, the king's servant, saying, Go inquire of the Lord for me and for those who are left in Israel and in Judah concerning the words of the book which has been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord, which is poured out on us, because our fathers have not observed the word of the Lord to do according to all that is written in this book. So Hilkiah and those whom the king had told went to Huldah, the prophetess, the wife of Shalom, the son of 
Tokath, the son of Hazra, the keeper of the wardrobe. Now she lived in Jerusalem in the second quarter, and they spoke to her regarding this. She said to them, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, tell the man who sent you to me, thus says the Lord, behold, I am bringing evil on this place and on its inhabitants. Even all the curses written in the book, which they have read in the presence of the king of Judah, because they have forsaken me and have burned incense to other gods that they might provoke me to anger with all the works of their hands. Therefore, my wrath will be poured out in this place and it shall not be quenched. But to the king of Judah, who sent you to inquire of the Lord, thus you will say to him, thus says the Lord God of Israel regarding the words which you have heard, because your heart was tender and you humbled yourself before God when you heard his words against this place and against its inhabitants, and because you humbled yourself before me, tore your clothes and wept before me, I truly have heard you, declares the Lord. Behold, I will gather you to your fathers, and you shall be gathered to your grave in peace, so your eyes will not see all the evil which I will bring on this place and on its inhabitants. And they brought back word to the king. Then the king sent and gathered all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem. The king went up to the house of the Lord and all the men of Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the priests, the Levites, and all the people, and from the least, excuse me, from the greatest to the least. And he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant, which was found in the house of the Lord. Then the king stood in his place and made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart and with all his soul to perform the words of the covenant written in this book. Moreover, he made all who were present in Jerusalem and Benjamin to stand with him. So the inhabitants of Jerusalem did according to the covenant of God, the God of their fathers. Josiah removed all the abominations from all the lands belonging to the sons of Israel and made all who were present in Israel to serve the Lord their God. Throughout his lifetime, they did not turn from following the Lord God of their fathers. And if I could say it this way, that's just sort of the beginning in terms of his life and his faithfulness to the Lord. And it shaped the nation. Imagine what would happen if Pastor John's prayer was answered in this nation. If just one person in a position of leadership turned to the Lord and then started living like it. Obviously, there was a basis in this nation because this nation was founded by God and had the word of God as its covenant and foundational direction for the way they were to live. But you talk about a transformation of a nation. But we're really talking not just about transformation of a nation or a revival of a nation, but a revival of a life. Turn, if you would, back to Psalm 119. Have you ever seen your life changed, revived, strengthened, built up by the Word of God? We are feeble and we fail, but God is strong and powerful. And his word is true. And his word can strengthen us. It can invigorate us. If you find yourself weak and in need of strength spiritually, read your Bible. Spend time with the Lord. There is strength when you spend time with the Lord. That's the testimony in verse 93. For by them you have revived me. And so he never resolved to never forget the precepts of God. 
In verses 94 and 95, we have a prayer for preservation and deliverance from his enemies. In verse 94, he says, I am yours. Save me, for I've sought your precepts. The wicked wait for me to destroy me. I shall diligently consider your testimonies. So the first thing is his claim to belong to God as God's possession. But there's a linking of that petition, save me, with that statement, I am yours. He's claiming that he has a relationship with God, and certainly God is his creator, but beyond being his creator, he's also his savior. In addition to being savior, he is his covenant Lord. David relates to God as his covenant Lord and serves him, and so he does belong to the Lord. This is the man after God's own heart, God's choice to be the king. And so David, in light of that relationship, cries out to God, asking for God to save him. I believe he's talking about a temporal salvation here. I say temporal because, and and, and that's opposed to spiritual, because he says in verse 95, the wicked wait for me to destroy me. We don't know all the circumstances that David is going through in this psalm, but he does talk about the wicked, and he's asking God for deliverance, for rescue. Here he talks about an ambush that is waiting for him, and in light of that, he prays for salvation. And God, of course, can save temporally. He can save spiritually. He can save in every way, but that's what he calls out upon God to do. But he doesn't just let the claim and the petition stand alone. Verse 94, I am yours, save me. There is proof that he belongs to the Lord. What is the proof that he truly does belong to the Lord? And you can find it at the end of verse 94, for I have sought your precepts. Charles Bridges said, some cry for salvation who neglect duty and thus make void their plea. In other words, save me, but there's no actual loyalty coming from the servant to the Lord. There's nothing that really demonstrates that he really is trusting in the Lord, and this really is his God. But what is the evidence? What is the proof? It's not perfection. It's not as though he can say, I have been righteous in everything that I have done. No, it is the seeking of God's precepts. And certainly seeking them means seeking to understand them, to know them, and then seeking to obey them. And if there's failure, I would suggest that a person who is seeking the precepts of God, when they see failure, they repent of that. They turn from that. They ask the Lord for forgiveness. They get back up again. And even the just person, Proverbs says, falls seven times, but rises up again and keeps on walking after the precepts of God. So this is the proof. He said, I'm yours. He is God's possession. He makes this prayer, save me, but here's the proof that there really is a relationship. He's not neglecting his duty. He loves God's word, and he loves God. 
And there's a similar thought in 1 John 5, 3, for this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, that we guard God's commandments. That can't mean absolutely perfectly 24-7, 365, 366 on a leap year. It can't mean that kind of perfection. If that means that kind of perfection, I don't love God and you don't love God. But if I am guarding God's commands and I'm keeping God's commands and I'm seeking to obey the Lord, but if I fail, I recognize it, I turn from it with God's help and I turn back to the Lord, that's guarding God's commandments. That's keeping God's commandments. And obviously there should be in the life of a believer obedience to God's commands. It shouldn't be a constant failure. Otherwise, how can we say we've really sought his precepts? But when we find ourselves actually doing it, actually obeying the Lord, we find ourselves having walked with God and resisted temptation, turned from evil, what do we say? I I hope this is sticking in your heart we say that's grace. That's God's grace that's enabling me. Enabling me. That's, that's God's spirit that's helping me. That's not in me. That it's not in my sinful flesh to obey the Lord, but it is by God's grace and by the power of his spirit. It is my experience because God is helping me. It's grace. What's the danger that he is facing? Verse 95, he says, the wicked wait for me. The idea is an ambush. There's danger that he's truly facing, and so what he turns to in those moments of danger, coming, becoming aware of that ambush, is what? What do you do when you're facing danger? When you have some circumstance beyond your control that's threatening and is a problem and may cause you to fear, what do you turn to? What does he turn to? in those moments of foreboding, and perhaps naturally we would be afraid if we understood that someone was trying to harm us, was waiting to ambush us, really had the power to. What do we turn to? What should we turn to? What is he turning to? He's turning to the Lord and his testimonies, the words of God, the truth of God. And he's resolving to do that in the midst of this dangerous circumstance. So what do you turn to when you're in trouble or distress? Is it your worries or is it the wisdom of God? Is it more of your troubles or is it the truth? Charles Bridges in his exposition of this psalm said, it is the considering of the Lord's testimony that draws out their staying support. The soul must be fixed upon them as tried words, purified seven times in the fire. And in this frame, I will, under all distresses, all circumstances of trial, or even of dismay, consider your testimonies. That's how he interprets his verse. I will consider the faithfulness of those blessed declarations. And he gives a series of declarations from God's word that he found precious. There shall not a hair of your head perish. Touch not my anointed. He who touches you touches the apple of my eye. He says, with this armor of defense, I shall not be afraid, even if I should hear evil tidings, that the wicked have waited for me to destroy me, or even if I should be destroyed, I know that your testimonies cannot fail. 
that my rock is perfect, that there is no unrighteousness in him. And therefore, though a host should encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war should rise against me, in this I will be confident. Whether then I'm delivered from the wicked and live, I live unto the Lord. Or whether I fall into their snare I die and die, I die unto the Lord. For I will consider your testimonies assured that all your purposes shall be accomplished concerning me. As you've said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. You will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Isaiah 26. And the reality is, even if they should ambush me and take my life, what does God have the power to do? Take me into his presence and resurrect my body. They cannot harm me, ultimately, if I'm in God's care. Where do I find those truths? I find them in the testimonies of God in his word. So when I am in trouble, when I'm afraid, when there's danger, I can look to the Lord, to his word for strength, for help, for hope, even if I should leave this life. That's not all there is. God has the power to raise me again. Look at verse 96. Our last consideration is the absolute necessity of God's preservation in light of our sin and weakness compared to the law of God. The absolute necessity of God's preservation in light of our sin and weakness compared to the law of God. Verse 96, he says, I have seen a limit to all perfection. Your commandment is exceedingly broad. God must preserve us. We cannot preserve or save ourselves. When he says, I've seen a limit to an end of all perfection. Perfection is to be without any flaw, without any defect. And the testimony of David here is there's a, there's a limit to perfection. When it comes to my life, when it comes to my sinful soul, I cannot uh, keep God's perfect law, which is, he says, it's exceedingly broad. It's extensive. It's wide. Just think about the breadth of the commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. Do you love yourself? We all love ourselves. Do you care for yourself? Do you take care of yourself? Okay, do you take care of your neighbor the same way you take care of yourself? No. No way. In fact, that's the commandment that James draws attention to when he says, you're sitting in the synagogue and two people walk in and one looks wealthy and the other looks poor. And as you observe the two of them, you place the wealthy person in a good place, but you say to the poor person, obviously poor, you go sit over here. Just your treatment of that in those moments breaks the command, love your neighbor as yourself. Instead of just loving that neighbor as yourself, what are you doing? You're judging upon some external standard, and for whatever reason, maybe it's a motive of greed or covetousness, whatever it may be, you're treating that wealthy person with favor over that person who is poor. And you've just broken the commandment. And if you break the commandment, that one commandment, love your neighbor as yourself, what does James say after that? He says, if you offend in one point, you're guilty of all. 
Okay, that's just the second greatest commandment. What about love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? Again, 24-7, 365, 366 on leap years, right? Yeah, no, no way. I just don't do this, and you don't do this. And if I just had those two commands, never mind the Ten Commandments, but the Ten Commandments are are rooted in those same truths about God. Loving God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength means there will be no other gods before him, means I certainly won't make any graven images. I won't take his name in vain. I'll remember his day to keep it holy. No, No time off from those requirements. You say, I wasn't converted. You don't get time off. You say, I wasn't right with the Lord. No time off. It's not as though those commands are somehow suspended when we're just in a bad mood. And beyond the first four, there's the other six. Honor your father and mother. I mean, just go through the list. And some of us would have to stop there and just think about, man, I didn't honor my father or mother, maybe in my last conversation with them. You don't get a day off. And the breadth of that is not just when I'm a teenager or a child. That actually extends into adult life. I I don't say honor your father and mother until I'm 18. It actually goes beyond that. You shall not kill. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. You shall not covet anything that's your neighbor's. Anything. Not his car, not his computer, not his lawn. Whatever belongs to him, belongs to him or her. All those commandments, they are inflexible. They are unbending. They're God's standard for life. The statements in the New Testament that give us guidance ethically, like how to live, are based upon who God is expressed in his law. I think we would argue that there's been a change with regard to the Sabbath, that we observe the Lord's Day. But when it comes to God's commandments and his expectation for worshiping him, there it is. David did not have New Testament revelation. All he had was the law. And what what was his estimation based upon his knowledge of the law, which he's talking about in this chapter? He says, I've seen a limit to all perfection. Your commandment is exceedingly broad. Our whole duty to God, Bridges said, 
Our neighbor and ourselves is here laid open before us, commanding without abatement, forbidding without allowance, making no excuse for ignorance, frailty, or forgetfulness, reaching not only to every species of crime, but to everything tending to it. This is perfection of which we never see an end. Every fresh view opens not the extent, but the immensity of the field and compels us at length to shut up our inquiries with the adoring acknowledgement, your commandment is exceeding broad. Its various parts form one seamless piece so that no particle can be separated without injury to the whole. And then he says this, and this is where, this is where if, if it's already broad based on what I've said so far and what we've thought about so far, let's just, let's deepen our understanding. I think you already probably understand this, but remi- let me remind you that the law is spiritual. It's spiritual. So it's not just dealing with external actions. Love takes place in the heart. It's worked out in practical ways in our lives. But he says this, the spirituality of its requirements equally illustrates its divine perfection. An angry look is murder. An unchaste desire is adultery. Covetousness in the heart is idolatry. The thought as well as the act, the first conception of sin, as well as the after commission, brings the verdict guilty death. There isn't anybody who keeps God's law. There isn't anybody. If somebody says they obey God, they keep the Ten Commandments, no, they don't. Just read the Ten Commandments and don't emphasize the spirituality and just talk about what the commandments actually mean with regard to the outer man. And you'd say, nobody keeps that. But then you emphasize the spirituality as Jesus did on the Sermon on the Mount. Nobody keeps God's law. I don't. You don't. And so I need grace. I need forgiveness. I need help. And so do you. I've seen a limit to all perfection. Your commandment is exceedingly broad. There's an absolute necessity that God would preserve us, that he would save us in light of our sinfulness and our weakness. And I don't want to give us, I don't want to give us the, the idea that we can never obey God because we can obey God. God gives direction regarding his will in our lives, and we can follow it. We can obey it and see the blessing that comes to our life. But can we do it perfectly? Will we do it perfectly? No. And when we fail, praise the Lord. He is a gracious and merciful God who, when we are weak, he is strong. When we sin, he does forgive. It's not that we always know that we've sinned, but we can come to God when he pricks our conscience and helps us to realize I've sinned and we can confess that and he will forgive that and help us to obey. And could I just encourage you to pray that prayer? Lord, help me to obey. Help me. He is our heavenly father. He is perfect. And he calls us to obey him commands us to obey him, sets before us not 
just the law, though the law is there, but he sets before us the one who said, your law is within my heart, and we look to him as our example and him as our goal. For to me to live is Christ. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. It's Christ that is our goal. It's not just a list of commandments. It's embodied, that obedience is embodied in a person. It's in Christ. And so we look to Christ. And as we pray for help, he will help us. Remember what he did for Peter? Peter gets out on the water. He starts looking at the waves, cries out, and the Lord reaches out and helps him. And if you're seeking to obey the Lord, you're seeking even to exercise faith in the Lord, will he help you? Yes, he will. Promises to. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Father in heaven, we bow. Thanksgiving for your law as it expresses your perfections, your glory as the only God the righteous God, the holy God. There is none like you. We thank you, Lord, for your preserving power. And we do ask, Lord, help us to obey. Help us to look on the Lord Jesus and to keep our eyes on him, keep on walking forward. And if we fall, and we all do, We ask, Lord, that you'd help us to get back up. If there's someone here tonight who's not walking with you, they're not in fellowship with you, we pray, Lord, even that the time that we've spent in your word tonight would be a means of reviving them, getting them back to the place where they're in fellowship with you. There's someone here tonight who does not know you. We pray that the law of God would convict their heart of sin and their guilt before you, that they might cry out to you for mercy and look to Jesus Christ and confess him as Lord and walk after him with all their life. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.